So tonight I want to speak about one of the calming factors of the factors of enlightenment. Uh, there are three, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And so tonight I want to focus on calm or tranquility. Jack gave a beautiful overview of the seven factors and then Leela brought us sati, mindfulness, which is really the keystone in the brilliant arch of all the Buddha's teachings. And she included some of the other uh, enlivening or arousing factors like um, curiosity, attentiveness, interest, investigation. And I felt that she really embodied this kind of courageous quality of virya, energy and enthusiasm. Um, But tonight we'll talk about calm. And as you settle more and more into the enjoyment of being here, and no matter how hard it may be, what's going on in your mind and your body, there's still that underlying gratitude and uh, beauty and pleasure in our surroundings here. And just the Vedna of pleasant, the likability, the lovability of Spirit Rock itself. And that helps release us from the restlessness of constantly imagining everything that is not us and that's away from us. And we we just start to settle. You start to settle into being here. And I, I felt this when I was here. Uh, I felt it right away, just that sort of settling into being here. But of course, what's so humbling is that that doesn't last. And I was remembering when I thought about calm, one of the most uncalm moments of my retreat here which was when I had hiked up the ridge and I decided to walk along the fire road up there and it was it was beautiful and I kind of underestimated I guess how far I had gone or the amount of time that it would take to get back and then when I started back I saw there was um, there was definitely a rainstorm coming And you can see that walking rain coming over the hills when you're up high like that. It was quite beautiful. And then, just as I was about to start this pretty steep walk down um, over on that side, well, the storm just blew in. It was very wild and exciting, and there was a lot of hail. And I was happy at first, because I thought, oh, good, I won't get wet, (laughs) because hail is dry. But then it came down harder and it was kind of stinging and it was white, lots of it. And I thought, oh my gosh. You know, the mind started with a little fear. I'm going to be the first woman in the history of Spirit Rock stoned to death by hail (laughs) on the ridge. And then it starts, you know, how long will it take for them to miss me? And, you know, right? Um, It's at times like this that we just feel so much gratitude and reverence for the Buddha's teaching, which just shows us how the mind creates all this stuff and how it can be released. So why does this factor of calm hold such 
such an important place that it's actually one of the factors of awakening or enlightenment. A story that is um, part of an answer for us. This is a story uh, from outside the retreat, but it's from a, a long time ago, 2005, in the Iraq War. A small unit of American soldiers was walking along a street in Najaf. And I actually saw the CNN clip of this. And what happened was the American soldiers were actually walking toward the mosque with the intention to protect the mosque. Uh, But what happened is that just the Iraqis, all they saw was soldiers walking toward the mosque. And so hundreds of Iraqis poured out into the street and just came out of all the buildings on either side of the soldiers. And their fists were waving and their throats tight and they were uh, just pressing in on the American soldiers who were starting to glance at each other in terror. And the Iraqis were just shrieking and they were frantic with rage And the reporter who tells this story uh, in The New Yorker is where it came out. Um, The reporter said, This is it, I thought. A shot would come from somewhere. The Americans will open fire and the world will witness the My Lai massacre of the Iraq war. At that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd holding his rifle high with... He was holding it over his head with a barrel uh, pointed to the ground. And against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a really, it was a striking gesture. The officer, impassive behind his surfer sunglasses, said, take a knee to his soldiers. And the soldiers looked at him as if he was crazy. And then one after another, swaying in all their bulky armor and gear, uh, they knelt before that boiling crowd and they um, pointed their guns at the ground. And the Iraqis fell silent and their anger fell away. And the officer ordered his men to withdraw. The officer in charge was named Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes and the New Yorker reporter who wrote about this tracked him down months later at his home in Iowa to find out who taught him that. Who taught him how to be that calm and how to tame a crowd, make a whole crowd calm like that. And he said, well, it was just an obvious solution. It was a gesture of respect. And shortly after that fraught experience in Najaf, the new army chief of staff at the time, General Shinseki, um, concluded that its officers were not prepared to innovate in this incoherent, asymmetrical war, and that most of the training manuals in use were non-essential and meaningless. For us, these factors of enlightenment are our training manual, training in respect, in non-contention. 
And they arise with our sincere practice of mindfulness and metta as a gesture of respect to ourselves, to each other, and to this life that we share. We create an atmosphere where it just supports our meeting each moment with a kind of um, presence, calm presence and awareness. So these mindfulness trainings of tranquility, concentration, equanimity, they grow our capacity for wise response, for wise and, and intimate, as Mark was saying this morning, intimate connection with our own experience. And then when we get you know, closer and closer to our own experience, <clears throat> Pema Chodron puts it this way. She says, the only reason that we don't open our hearts and minds to other people is that they trigger confusion in us that we don't feel brave enough or sane enough to deal with. To the degree that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, we feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. So we sit together and we incline our minds in this direction toward of respect toward cherishing all life. And as we begin to know our own lives better and better, we really can start to have a clear understanding of what others might be experiencing too. And uh, we just, you know, more and more we quiet down, we let go of everything that came before this moment, of everything that's coming after this moment, and uh, find our balance in this present moment, our hearts quiet and steady. And so now I want to talk to you about some practical, like, how do we calm down? The silence is so helpful. You know, we often say if you did nothing but come here and be silent for a month, just that would be completely life-changing. It would be transformative. This is from Thomas Merton, the <clears throat> Trappist monk, writer, social activist. By the way, that's the Vipassana cough. We haven't spoken to the one-month people about it, but since I have one, I'm demonstrating. Um, we don't cough on our hands, because then when we open the doors and stuff, we're spreading our germs, and it's still cough and cold season. So uh, I'm washing my hands constantly, don't worry. I'm not touching anything, no. Um, <laughs> it's... I don't have a cold. It's just a cough. So, but anyway, <laughs> and you're far enough away from me. Don't worry. But um, this is how we do it. You know, into the um, elbow, like <coughs> like that. To deliver oneself up, to hand oneself over, says Thomas Merton. To trust oneself completely to the silence of a wide landscape of woods and hills to sit still while the sun comes up over the land and fills its silences with light, to pray and work in the morning and to labor and rest in the afternoon and to sit still again, I would add, again and again, in meditation in evening when the night falls upon the land, when the silence fills itself with darkness and with stars. He says this is a true and special vocation. 
there are few who are willing to belong completely to such silence, to let it soak into their bones, to breathe nothing but silence, to feed on silence, and to turn the very substance of their life into a living and vigilant silence. So this is the third full day of practice for many of you. Uh, For those of you who've already been here, your life may already be a living, vigilant silence. I know for myself, sometimes getting up on the third morning of retreat, I feel kind of like a brontosaurus, you know, trying to hoist myself out of the tar pit. And it's hard. It's actually impossible. And it's a tar pit of, you know, all the hindrances. We're not going to list them for you. We're going to focus on the factors of enlightenment. But um, we figure you probably know enough about them uh, without our having to, you know, go over them a lot. But, um, but still, it feels like that sometimes, waking up on the third day, just about as much chance of transforming and accepting the hindrances as of getting out of the tar pit. And we have a place in L.A. called the La Brea Tar Pit where you can actually still see dinosaur bones. Um, anyway, any... Um, <laughs> uh, for the two-month people, any aversion or resistance you might have felt to that your first team leaving and our arriving, hopefully now it's opened into some calm and maybe even curiosity and... And, and really, the one-month people entered so reverently and mindfully, really very, very calmly, actually. Thank you for that. One person happily reported in our meeting. I asked, you know, what is happening in your practice? How are you doing? And this person said, nothing. Nothing is happening. And then they went on to say, it took 30 days. But finally, nothing is happening. (laughs) You know, this is calm. It's really very neutral. Usually it's ecstasy we're after. You know, not so much serenity or calm. Um, This is a cartoon I like from The New Yorker. It, It shows this very tall, elegant lady and looks like a cocktail party, and she's talking to a kind of amiable-looking, obviously Buddhist monk. He's looking at her with a kind of bemused smile, and she says to him, making conversation, friendly, holding her wine glass, I imagine serenity is pretty much the same one season to the next, I know, it takes a minute. (laughs) So one way we develop the capacity to steady the heart and calm down and really be here is by being in the presence, the holding presence of another. We're offering that to each other. And I love, uh, there's a British pediatrician and psychoanalyst named D.W. Winnicott, Uh, He's dead now, but he wrote a lot in the 50s. And 
he talked about the capacity to be alone with oneself and how that capacity grows from being held in the presence of another. And I wanted to tell you, this is a story about this kind of holding. It's amazing because I was going through some old papers and, you know, preparing to come here. And um, this is an email I wrote to Leela in 2001. It's from an email I wrote to her a long time ago. Uh, because the baby in this email is four months old. And in June, she's going to be ten. Um, I babysat Allie for hours today, so Hillary, my daughter, could go to her very best friend's wedding. Allie went crazy with sadness and anger at the end of the day when I gave her the bedtime bottle. She's so used to having the breast all the time, she kept putting her tiny fist against my chest where Hillary's breast should have been and trying to knead it, but it wasn't Hillary's soft breast and she was in complete despair. It was actually really painful to see. I wrote, I'm exhausted. Finally, after sobbing a lot, she let me calm her. I laid her in her crib and she screamed again. I realized how much dukkha of a very real sort, not too different from ours at all, infant's experience. Again, I'd known this intellectually, but the experience is so vivid. Her capacity to modulate and understand her experience is what is not there. Zero mindfulness. So she was screaming on her little back in the crib, and I began holding and stroking her little head and singing to her just leaning over her, quiet and compassionate, truly quiet. And suddenly, she smiled. She stopped. There was a great, vast silence, and she stared into my eyes from her empty window of just being purely present. I felt tears of recognition and love for this state, and as they welled up, In me, she gave me the most ecstatic smile. I told her some love things, and she wiggled her whole body and kicked with all her might, grinning her gummy joy. And we continued like this in the dark room in the silence. And then she lost it again. So, of course, I picked her up again, and we started the whole thing over. But this time she really fell asleep before I tried to put her down. What a work this is. I do feel blessed to reconnect with this time of human life. And I bow to what we all pass through. And what a miracle it is when parents can hold steady in the face of such storms. And you know, no matter what our parents were like or turned into or they did hold us often when we were babies. And, and that's that holding that he's talking about. Nothing perfect. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, um, Ed Tronick at the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute did research of um, mother-baby, parent-baby dyads, pairs, and found that in order for the babies to develop a healthy, in a healthy way and, and uh, healthy relationships, that kind of attunement or meeting really only had to happen 30% of the time. That's, 
encouraging for us, but uh, kind of can calm us down when we reflect uh, on our own parenting or the parenting we received. But generally our parents, you know, when a baby cries, most people do hold that baby. They don't go, ah, and drop it. You know, they hold that baby. Um, and they maybe even sing. From Leonard Cohen, I've always held the song in high regard because songs have got me through so many sinks of dishes and so many humiliating courting events. Um, So in a way, mindfulness mothers us is our dear friend, and we're learning the skills here to be able to hold ourselves, to sing that song of silence to ourselves and to each other, and to simply be still and realize that this is the shelter from the storm. That's all. Just holding still, being present, coming in from the cold rain and hail, warming up. And day by day as we sit and walk, sit and walk together, well, I haven't done so much recently since I got here. This time you are sitting and walking together, but I hold the intention to join you more and more. All the tensions and tightness in the body, uh, first they tighten, but then they loosen as we calm down, and we all do, and become attuned to receiving and holding this um, just immense current of life flowing through us all. In Zen, uh, Dogen Zenji, 13th century Zen master we revered, he always talked about um, magnanimous mind, parental mind, And in the texts, they refer to the grandmotherly kindness of the Zen masters who cut through our uh, agitation and confusion. Some of the methods weren't necessarily what we ordinarily associate with uh, grandmothers, but but kindness, you know, real grandmotherly kindness. And um, I don't have my grandmother quote, I don't think. Okay, so the thing is often we're paying so little attention to these ongoing waves of our own life experiences just coming at us that we're simply not paying enough attention to notice that we're not really paying attention. And this is what retreat is so great for. It just helps us wake up to our life and the life that's beckoning all around us, that's really extending a limitless invitation to us to wake up and be present. And awareness is magnanimous that way. It really is extending and receiving that endless invitation. Um, In the last month, Guy talked about Yoniso Manisakara, wise, careful attention. And he talked about how the root of the word yoni means womb, and how it's a kind of embracing, sheltering, holding with love uh, and tenderness, this warm, yoni womb, uh, very calming image of mindfulness, just you know, sort of shot through with metta and, um, and warmth. And here's the grandmother quote. All children are my children. I teach them the songs and whatever else I can. That's what grandmothers are for, 
to teach songs and tell stories and show them the right berries to pick and roots to dig. This is the kind of wise um, discernment, you know, uh, that we're learning. Where are the berries and the good roots, you know, the things that will really nourish us, these um, various factors of awakening. And also to give them all the love they can stand. No better job in the world than being grandmother. Uh, This is from uh, a Native American grandmother named Leela Fisher. When we're present in this way, Zen Master Rinzai said, there's nothing that's not sacred. There's nothing that's not or can't be profound. From a Lakota holy man, every step you take could be a prayer. And if every step you take is a prayer, then you will always be walking in a sacred manner. And that kind of walking is calm, balanced, uh, dignified, poised. Metta brings calm to us, self-compassion and calm, helping us to hold our suffering and to stop fighting with it. And nature, too, is so calming, offering metta to us, offering dana to us, giving, 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 giving us her unbroken samadhi. And there's something reassuring about feeling ourselves here in nature. You know, the Buddha touched the earth, and we do too. One more quote from, um, this is from, an address to the NGO at the United Nations in 1977 from Oren Lyons from the Onondaga tribe. I do not see a delegation for the four-footed. I see no seat for the eagles. We forget and we consider ourselves superior. But we are a mere part of the creation. We We must consider to understand where we are. And we stand somewhere between the mountain and the ant. It's reassuring. We stand somewhere between the mountain and the ant. And then trust or faith, having some trust or faith calms us down. And I think that's really the role of us, of the teacher, is to hold that trust or hold that faith um, until it grows strong enough in you as just as our teachers did for us. Uh, This is from Sharon Salzberg, her book, Faith. She said, when I was preparing to leave India in 1974, I'd gone to see Deepa Ma, one of her wonderful teachers, to get her blessing. Suddenly, in the midst of our conversation, she said to me, when you go back to America, you should teach meditation. She was 21 at the time. I was astonished and immediately protested, no, I can't do that. I'm not at all qualified. 
She smiled patiently, as though at a child who has lost the point of a story, and answered, Yes, you should teach. You really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And then Sharon goes on to say, The notion that the unhappiness of my earlier life could serve as the distinction of my abilities seemed most peculiar. Um, she's, you know, she didn't have a full grasp of Buddhist philosophy, psychology, cosmology. You know, she, um, what she had was the power of having moved through her own great heartache. And as she says, rather than being destroyed by it, coming to greater faith, faith in myself, faith in the power of love, and faith in the movement of life itself. Also, we slow into our experience here, you know, dropping that spiritual to-do list. Let's see, I better get to the next jhana soon, or get to the jhanas at all, or, or I won't uh, make it to the really cool ones, or um, you know, it's just. <laughs> I'm going to put that one away. Um, the secret mystical mysterious teachings, right? Eating when we eat, walking when we walk, doing our work meditation simply and mindfully. In Zen, we say, forgetting yourself in the activity of doing it, whatever it is. But it's not the, um, you know, it's not the kind of forgetting yourself where you just don't even know what you're doing. I mean, some of us as parents, or if if you have children in your life, you may have developed the dubious skill of being able to read a story to a child without hearing one word of it. Um, you can read whole pages and turn them. And um, anyway, not that kind of forgetting, but just forgetting to worry about ourselves, forgetting to be preoccupied with ourselves in the presence of the clouds rolling around the hills and the sound of the turkeys gobbling in the stream, you know, walking into the dining room and um, just a cup of tea or a hawk on the roof or I saw deer munching in the grass in the dark last night. And this is how we swim inward. This is how we pray, says Mary Oliver. This is the world that is ours, or could be. Uh, So I do want to, um, just a few more practical suggestions about um, calm. The Buddha said, for one who is at ease, her body calmed, the mind becomes concentrated. When the mind of one who is at ease, her body calmed, becomes concentrated, then concentration as a factor for awakening becomes aroused. She develops it, and for her it goes to the culmination of development. So, uh, this is from (coughs) Saida Upandita. It's a book called In This Very Life, and actually Leela wrote it. Um, they, They say Upandita did. I mean, it's his teaching, but she wrote the book. Um, see, she's not contradicting me, you notice that. It took her a long time to write this book. <laughs> um, 
The Pali word for this coolness or calmness is um, pasadi. And so he's talking about different ways of calming the mind and body. Here's one I like. It's called extracting heat from the mind. Um, calm function is to extract or suppress the heat of the mind that arises due to restlessness, dissipation, or remorse. When the mind is assaulted by these states, it becomes hot as if on fire. And the tranquility of mind, you know, it, it reminds me of um, these images of, of Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva Compassion, there are many different images of her, but one that I love is, I saw it actually in Korea at this uh, country monastery that this giant, giant, oh, taller than the top of the ceiling, maybe as tall, big white statue of Kuan Yin. And it was dark when we arrived and she was glowing huge and white. And she's holding, you've seen these um, images Kwansei and Bosal in Korea, Kanzeon or Kanon in, in uh, Japan, and Kuan Yin in China, and she's holding a vase, sort of tipping it, and that vase is the cooling water, right? It's, it's pasadi, it's, it's tranquility um, that extracts the heat um, of our agitation. And then I mentioned wise attention. And here are seven more ways to develop tranquility. Proper food. Well, we are getting proper food. We don't, that's a good one though, isn't it? Because it's so simple. You know, it just, it gives, it's so encouraging. You know, you don't have to work for three weeks to develop a few jhana factors. You can just have some proper food uh, three times a day, right here, cooked for you. Amazing. Um, Good climate. Listen, I spent most of my adult life in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is a good climate. (laughs) But Upandita says helpfully, um, whatever climate, you know, everybody has preferences, whatever you prefer, it is possible to adapt to different climates by the use of fans and heaters or lighter and heavier clothing. Three, a comfortable posture. We generally sit and walk in Vipassana practice, and these are the two best postures. So you see, it's um, easy to have your mind become very relaxed and comfortable. Number four, neither, o- neither over-enthusiasm nor sloppiness. So this is about a balanced effort in practice. This is about wise effort. It's so personal. People ask, you know, lots of questions. How much this and how long that? And It's so personal. You find your way. Um, but, you know, we find out through, we push ourselves too hard and get um, a headache or just restless and antsy and wired. Or... Um, we just decide to kind of take it easy. And, and I don't mean Rinzai's take it easy and do nothing, because the key there is 
do nothing. You know, that's the nothing that you maybe attain after 30 days of sitting, if you're lucky. But if we just kick back, you know, and anyway, lazy, sloppy types will be like snails crawling far behind, he says. This is if you're, you know, trying to um, go somewhere, which of course we're not, so we don't have to worry about that. Five and six, avoiding louts, choosing calm and kind friends. So um, because we're in silence, you could be loutish. I don't know, you know, it doesn't matter because we are avoiding those loutish parts of ourselves. And for those of you who are not native English speakers, a lout is just a very kind of... um, clumsy, insensitive, rough type of person. And so uh, we don't, really, we hardly will know if we're ill-tempered or so forth um, because we can't voice much to each other. And so that's a good thing in this situation. But I think most people who come here to do this are not rough or cruel and... It would be too unpleasant uh, to sit with yourself this long, if you were. Seriously, it it would be horrible. Um, And you would never arrive at Pasadi, calm, peace of mind. So it's, I think, obvious that we become calmer by associating with each other, being calm and quiet here. And um, I'm going to add one that he didn't put in the list, but it's, it's really more about, he puts it in the list of how do you cultivate a kind of um, PT or uh, d- delight in the practice, which is to reflect on our own goodness, that we're not loutish, most of the time anyway, and not here if we are probably we save that for our most beloved, intimate associates. Um, you know, we're not rough and cruel, and, and we are devoted enough to the Dharma to come here and do this. All of us, you know, we're here. Two months, one month, uh, it's a big chunk of our life. And so to reflect on our goodness and our dedication instead of imagining that you know devotion and dedication are these like giant huge qualities that wouldn't be us Um, but to see it as more ordinary just the willingness to step by step walk breath by breath sit uh, wash those pots clean the bathrooms that was my yogi job and i keep forgetting i go in the bathroom and i today i was putting more paper towels in and i reminded myself no this is not my work meditation anymore um this is my work meditation now. <laughs> that was easier, actually. But to reflect on uh, just that simple kind of goodness that you're doing all day long, this is very, very... I think it's really, really um, makes us feel very peaceful, quiets our whole nervous system down. And the last one is inclining the mind toward peacefulness. If you incline your mind toward practice, you can realize this aim. 
This whole question of inclining the mind is really an interesting one. And um, I, I've copied something down. I don't seem to have it, but I, I remember this if I don't find it. Um, inclining the mind, it means really, you know, that we, we've talked about this, that we can actually develop, we can actually intentionally cultivate, develop, grow certain capacities of our minds and hearts. That's what we're doing every afternoon in the metta practice. And inclining the mind, um, it's, it's, it's this powerful. Um, yeah, I don't have it, but I remember it. When I, there was a time in my life when I went to school to learn to ride a motorcycle. I had one and I didn't know how to ride it. So I went to this motorcycle safety course and I failed it. And um, I almost actually killed the instructor. And so (laughs) I sold my motorcycle after that because, you know, we are practicing precepts and it didn't seem right. So what I will say, though, is that I learned something really interesting. They taught us about a phenomenon called target fixation. And target fixation is something that happens and causes tremendous number of accidents and even deaths because what happens is, let's say you're on your motorcycle. I have this very beautiful image of myself on the motor. You're roaring around the corner and there's a telephone pole where you didn't expect there to be one. And you see, to that which we give our attention to that does the mind and heart incline. And the shock of seeing an unexpected obstacle, people look at it. And the motorcycle goes where you look. And so there are um, a lot of accidents that happen that way. But target fixation is good news for us when we are making resolves to incline our minds toward calm and tranquility, toward... uh, love and kindness and friendliness and warmth and so but it's very powerful it works when we make resolves you know this is we're inclining the mind towards something and it will appear you know those fairy tales be careful what you wish for anyway um Some of the blessings of calm, of tranquility, are that we can be together this way, that everything can be held in this vast stillness and peacefulness that Ali found and that we found together and that we could recognize in each other. And you can let this come into your life, into your practice here, and just let it grow and grow. You can let your heart be still. This is from Pablo Neruda. It's a poem called, I like for you to be still. And just reading part of it, condensing. He says, I like for you to be still. Let me come to be still in your silence. 
And let me talk to you with your silence that is bright as a lamp, simple as a ring. You are like the night with its stillness and constellations. Your silence is that of a star, as remote and candid. I like for you to be still. Then one smile is enough. Yeah, we get sensitive and receptive and we notice just smallest smiles and gestures. Somebody holding the door for you or uh, somebody picking up something you dropped or somebody, you know, just the small gestures of our life here together. So calm is like that cool water. We can let Kuan Yin just pour it on our lust and on our... um, intense restlessness and on our uh, all our coulda, shoulda, wouldas and our heated rush toward more, better, different, something, anything. Ikkyu, wonderful Zen master, said, I'd like to give you something, but what would help? What would help? What would help you calm down? So I'm going to close this talk with a little poem from Kabir. It's an endless invitation. He says, Don't go outside your house to see flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. And it's true, it's amazing, you know, those of you who have been sitting for a month, you already know this. Those of you who are new here, you know this from other retreats, and if you don't, you will. Just to sit in the body, to feel the thousand sensations, this field of sensation we call our body. It's amazing. When we calm down, we can feel all this. And then we don't have to go outside our house to see flowers. I love this. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. You're sure to find one. That will do for a place to sit. So let's sit in that place for a few minutes, a minute or two.
So this is what should be done, right? By one who is skilled in goodness to know the path of peace. Thank you for listening to Loud, Soft, or Neither. And um, hope it, if it, you know, if it was pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, I thank you for your attention in any case. And this is a walking meditation, so enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.